Live fast, die young is the mantra of many a dead rock star. But what happens if you live fast and survive? Maybe that's the toughest test of all. Welcome to a Bob Dylan Primer. In this episode, we're going to take a look at maybe the most mysterious period in Dylan's mysterious career. A period of time where Dylan, then one of the most famous rock stars in the world, just dropped clean out of sight. Before he vanished from view, Dylan was on the verge of a complete physical, mental, and psychic breakdown, if not death itself. And when he re-emerged a year and a half later, he was a slightly chubby man of mystery, wearing dark shades and singing completely different kinds of songs in a completely different voice. What happened? And how did this happen? This is Episode 5, Basement Medicine. Before we get rolling, I'd like to alert you to the website for this series, which can be found at abobdylanprimer.com, and where you'll find links to some cool content related to what you're hearing here. Please check it out, and thank you. In episodes one through four, we looked at Dylan's early life and the start of his career as a songwriter and performing artist, and how quickly he transformed into one of the planet's most compelling public characters and a creative force with a stunningly poetic power. And in 1966, Dylan released the double album, Blonde on Blonde, and toured Australia and Europe in a series of concerts that transfixed and terrified Dylan's fans and detractors alike. And he came off that tour completely spent, his voice shot, his skeletal body laced with amphetamine, cigarette smoke, and God knows what else. So Dylan finishes the tour and flies back to New York City at the end of May 1966. But this time, Dylan doesn't stay in Manhattan. Instead, he drives upstate to rural Woodstock, where he had bought a house the year before. And there he undergoes what can only be called a transformation into what seemed from the outside to be a completely different performer and persona. For 18 months, no new music is released to the public by Bob Dylan. That was an extremely long spell, considering he'd previously released seven albums in four years. And then, at the end of December 1967, a new album appears in record stores. It's called John Wesley Harding. It contains 12 brand new songs, sung in a new voice, still nasally but with a controlled power and warmth that is incredibly evocative and also mysterious and almost religious-sounding. In fact, the album is full of religious imagery. Twelve songs, all without a chorus, which is pretty unusual, and most of them running shorter than three minutes, which is also a big departure for Dylan. So at this point, I'd like to run the clock backwards to the point where Dylan arrives in Woodstock, uncovering what we now know or think we know happened in those 18 months between the cataclysmic performance of Like a Rolling Stone that closed the 1966 tour at the Royal Albert Hall and this new album called John Wesley Harding. So Dylan arrives in Woodstock with his wife Sarah in June of 1966, but there's another member of the family present, baby Jesse Dylan, who had been born six months earlier in January 1966. If you remember from episode four, That's the same month that Dylan started recording Blonde on Blonde. So here's Dylan at the height of his rock star fame and art world hipsterdom and heavy amphetamine use, 
flying down to Nashville every few weeks to write and record the incredible songs that made up Blonde on Blonde. And meanwhile, Sarah has just given birth to the couple's first child, and she is still living at the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan, as far as I can tell. And there is also Sarah's four-year-old daughter, Maria, from Sarah's first marriage. And then Dylan, the new father, takes off for a six-week tour of Australia and Europe, where he seems like a man on his very last legs. But Dylan somehow survives the 66 tour and comes back to his new home in Woodstock, joining Sarah and four-year-old Maria and baby Jesse. And Dylan is strung out and trying to regain his balance with two young children in the house. And about two months after the Dillons arrive in upstate New York, news reports emanating from Woodstock report that Dylan has been injured in a serious motorcycle accident. The semi-official story that later came out is that Dylan was riding his Triumph Tiger 100, and the sun got in his eyes and blinded him as he was taking a turn, and the bike skidded and crashed. There's a very good chance, however, that what may have happened is that Dylan was walking the heavy motorcycle down the road because the tires were flat, and Dylan slipped and the bike fell on top of him. There's little doubt that he did hurt his back and possibly broke one of the vertebrae in his neck. So what I'm saying here is, without any actual documentation, but simply derived from reading the available sources, is that Dylan's infamous motorcycle accident may not have ever happened. But in my opinion, it doesn't matter. What matters is how the real or imagined accident affected Dylan's future. That July morning, instead of going to the hospital, Sarah drives Dylan about an hour to a house where Dylan's doctor lives. And this doctor examines Dylan and tells him he needs rest and quiet. And so Dylan, again, with a new wife and two young children at home, moves into this doctor's house and recuperates there for the next six weeks or so. And this is a turning point. Around that time, there was all kinds of crazy speculation that Dylan was a vegetable or that he was paralyzed. And then recently, people have downplayed the seriousness of Dylan's injuries that summer. But what can't be argued is that the accident marks a chronological moment where Dylan's work and lifestyle changed in an extremely radical fashion. Sometime in September 1966, Dylan moves back home and settles into a kind of peaceful country living that he'd not experienced before. For one thing, he is now rich. Money from record sales and publishing is pouring in. So he has people to cook his meals and drive him around if he needs something. Dylan spends the days with his kids, visiting with friends and reading a lot. And one of the things he starts reading a lot of is the Bible. It seems that Dylan was drawn to connections between the language of the Bible and the old songs he had learned over the years, and the connections between those things and the greater human experience. And it really changed the way Dylan wrote songs. But he wasn't writing any songs yet. He was hanging out with Sarah and Maria and the baby boy Jesse. And soon Sarah was pregnant again. The other main activity that filled Dylan's days back then is editing film footage that documentarian D.A. Pennebaker had shot during the 1966 tour of England. A bunch of editing equipment is delivered to the house in Woodstock, and the plan is to cut the footage into a film for ABC that would air on network television with the help of editor Howard Auk. 
That never happened, though the film was eventually completed and called Eat the Document. But that's a story for another episode. While Dylan is trying to put the film together, he decides he wants to film some more scenes, more material for the movie. So he calls up Rick Danko and Richard Manuel from the band, and they drive up from New York City and start to hang out in Woodstock. And pretty soon, Robbie Robertson shows up as well, and then Garth Hudson, and even LaVon Helm, the band's drummer who bailed on the tour of England. So now you've got Dylan, who must have started to feel human again, and the members of the band all living close to each other. And the guys in the band rent a house out in the country, not too far from where Dylan is living. And pretty soon, Dylan starts showing up at the house where the guys are staying. Apparently, they all settle into a kind of routine. Dylan would show up around noon, make a pot of coffee, and sit down at a typewriter at the kitchen table. And he'd write some songs sitting there, and pretty soon the guys in the band would come downstairs and get out their instruments and roll a pile of joints and fire up. And then Dylan would show them the chord changes he'd written, and they'd start to play, and Dylan would sing, and they'd put together these songs pretty much on the spot. And they had also set up recording equipment, so they record most of what they're doing. And over the next few months, Dylan and the band record well over 100 songs, some traditional stuff, some rockabilly standards, and a bunch of new songs. And the difference between the sound of these recordings and the sound of the previous songs the band recorded with Dylan for Blonde on Blonde and the 66 tour cannot be overestimated. This music came from a different planet. There are lots of theories about why Dylan decided to record these songs, and many people think it had something to do with the fact that he was feeling pressure from his manager and the record company to deliver new material, and that the plan was to write new songs that could be sent to other artists to cover, to create new revenue. And while it is true that approximately 15 of these songs were circulated to different recording artists by Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, I don't think that explanation holds much water certainly not as an explanation for the vast and varied terrain of musical riches that Dylan and the band unearthed during their time together in upstate New York. In 1975, Columbia Records released an album called The Basement Tapes, containing about 20 of these tracks. But then, in 2016, Dylan released a 111-track box set that represents all of the known recordings that were made back then between March and October 1967. Far too much music to summarize here, and critic historian Grail Marcus has written two entire books about the basement tapes, as these songs came to be known. But the music overall has a kind of duality, both otherworldly and earthy as dirt. It's joyful and happy, but with an underpinning of morality and mortality. Some of the tracks recorded in the basement have become key pillars of the Dylan songbook, like I Shall Be Released and This Wheel's on Fire. Some are just stone jokes like See You Later, Allen Ginsberg, and some are reworkings of old songs like Ain't No More Cain, written by Leadbelly. I want to single one track out of the whole crazy bunch, called I'm Not There. Yes, it was used as the title for an ambitious movie directed by Todd Haynes, that was supposed to create a cinematic portrait of Dylan's life and Dylan's music. But let's leave that aside for a moment and just talk about the song, I'm Not There. It's a wonderfully powerful song, 
But what seems to be happening, or what seems to have happened, is that Dylan showed the band the chord changes and then improvised the lyrics on the spot. Much of the song is not even English, it's just sounds that sound like English, and words and phrases. And yet, the impact of the song, the emotional impact, is clear and direct. Dylan Freaks, who heard the song in bootleg versions over the years, coveted the tune for a long time as a kind of benchmark of the depth of Dylan's mystery. And I have to admit, I was a little sad when the movie came out and it was exposed to the harsh light of day for all to stream and play while on a treadmill or elliptical trainer. But now that a few years have passed, the old mysterious moss has regrown over the song and it has regained its strange talismanic power. So anyway, for about six or seven months, playing music pretty much every day, Dylan seems to be growing new singing and songwriting muscles. And it seems like the days in the basement are him training those muscles to perform new feats of musical dexterity and craftsmanship. And as much as he was enjoying the camaraderie and collaboration with the members of the band, in October 1967, Dylan next does a very Dylan-esque thing. He calls up Bob Johnston, the producer of Blonde on Blonde, and tells him he wants to record some new songs. And he asks Johnston to hire Kenny Buttry and Charlie McCoy from the Blonde on Blonde sessions and to book studio time in Nashville. And a few weeks later, Dylan shows up in Nashville with 12 brand new songs, fully written out, and over the course of three days in the studio, Dylan and Buttry and McCoy along with Pete Drake playing steel guitar on two tracks, record the songs which became John Wesley Harding. None of the songs were things that Dylan had been working on with the band over the previous months, and there's very little evidence of when Dylan actually wrote the new songs. But they represent a major shift in Dylan's songwriting and signal a striking new chapter of his work. Four of the 12 tunes seem to lay out almost conventional narratives. There's the title track, John Wesley Harding, about a Robin Hood-type outlaw, one lusty blues number called Down Along the Cove, a straight country shout-out to new love called I'll Be Your Baby Tonight, and the plaintive Dear Landlord. The eight remaining songs on the album all seem connected at some level and seem to have sprouted from the same deep root. But they're highly inscrutable, filled with novel turns of phrase that almost seem to have been translated from a now-dead language. Things like, I pity the poor immigrant whose strength is spent in vain, whose heaven is like Ironsides, whose tears are like rain. These eight songs are, As I went out one morning, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine, All along the watchtower, Drifters escape, I am a lonesome hobo, I pity the poor immigrant, The wicked messenger, and the frightening parable of greed and lust called the Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Of course, many of you are familiar with All Along the Watchtower as a staple of classic rock is covered by Jimi Hendrix. But the original two-and-a-half-minute version on this record is like a cold gust of wind dead in the face, and when you play it next to the other songs of mystery on the album, the overall effect is like you've opened a cellar door into a world of sound and images that is old and dusty, maybe left over from the post-Civil War years, but still vibrating with the pent-up energy of a melting nuclear reactor. The contrast between John Wesley Harding and the albums released by Rock's other big stars in that incredible cultural moment 
couldn't be more dramatic. Remember, the summer of love had just passed. Here are just a few of the albums released by other bands in 1967. Surrealistic Pillow by the Jefferson Airplane. Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. The Doors debut album. Disraeli Gears by The Cream. Days of Future Past by The Moody Blues. Pink Floyd's first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Satanic Majesty's Request by The Rolling Stones. And a little number called Sgt. Pepper by The Beatles. So everywhere you turned in the rock landscape in 1967, you had these massively layered concoctions of psychedelic expression, pushing the limits of the pop song. And then you had Bob Dylan releasing an album of three-minute tunes recorded with a three-piece Nashville band. What are we to make of the changes Dylan was expressing in 1967? We have the strongest tendency to view the careers and work of our artists and performers as a series of rises and falls. The classic paradigm hammered into our brains by a thousand biographies and so many episodes of VH1's Behind the Music or the E! True Hollywood Story. An artist struggles, has early success, achieves great fame, then confronts adversity and either dies or survives. And if they survive, they reach a new plateau of contentment and creativity that carries them to the end of their days. That template is probably bullshit for 90% of the lives to which it's been applied, and it really doesn't match Dylan's life at all. In fact, that kind of story distorts and diminishes Dylan's work in a major way and gets in the way of our understanding of what might really be happening. After the insanity of the 1966 tour, Dylan took a step out of the mainstream, and I don't know if he made a conscious choice or an intuitive choice, but the moves Dylan made in 1967 point to his unerring instinct for the long play. Starting in 1963, Dylan was suddenly part of the contemporary artistic and cultural conversation, and that continued through 1964, 65, and 66. But around the time when John Wesley Harding was released, something changed, and it's been different for Dylan since 1967. He took a step to just outside the mainstream, I would guess because he realized the mainstream was not a productive place to be in terms of creating work. The mainstream is a place where an artist is either just battling to stay in it or trying to repeatedly fulfill the same expectations all the time. And Dylan didn't want any part of that. Dylan's shift in 1967 was not a retreat or withdrawal from the turmoil and drama and excitement that was churning all around the cities and towns of America and across the world at that moment. Instead, he somehow had the instinct and clarity to understand that sidestepping the chaos would lead to the deepest creative and musical rewards. Music for this broadcast was provided by Max Ferguson, sound designed by John Zalewski. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Join in again for episode six, which is about how Dylan sold out to commercialism. No, just kidding. It's about the surprising dive Dylan took into the pool of country music. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.